Welcome to the Brown County Hour. Coming to you from the legendary hills of Brown, where the plum purple haze, the one nature herself drapes over the hills and hollers, inspires local characters, artists, and nature lovers. It's as though the hills themselves conspire to create a beauty and culture in the heart of Indiana. Sit for a spell and hear the music. Tall tales. True stories. And current goings on. Brought to you by folks who still know how to sit by a fire in winter. And swim buck naked in summer. Welcome to episode 84 of the Brown County Hour. This is Vera Grubbs. And Dave Seastrom, along with the rest of the crew. This month, we have Amanda Webb and her band in the studio, and we'll hear a cut from her new CD, Demon Street Rations, and a couple other tunes we recorded live. Vera Grubbs interviews artist Gabriel Lehman, and we're introduced to a new segment from our herbalist, Susan Clearwater, that she calls for your health, highlighting herbs, and the holistic approach. Jeff Tryon shares a few thoughts about the local music scene. We have an interview with the president of the Brown County League of Women Voters, Sherry Frank, and she is joined by our own Pam Rader. And just like everyone else in the county, Dave Seastrom has something to say about the weather. Our first segment focuses on Amanda Webb and her band, and we'll listen to a tune from her new CD, Demon Street Rations, called Twilight. my privilege to have the Amanda Webb band in this evening and they have just treated us to a spectacular live performance here in our studio and with us this evening is Amanda and Brian and of course they are husband and wife Mr. and Mrs. Webb and with us is Jeff Roughton, who is the drummer, who, bless his heart, really behaved himself this evening, <laughs> which, you know, given the nature of drummers, we were all impressed. Yeah. It's hard to do. It is, I'm sure. <laughs> Very hard. Uh, no, you, you, got, you got the rhythm across. You really did. Yeah. Well, you guys have just come back from a really exciting event down in Memphis, Tennessee, the International Blues Challenge, yes. which, tell us about that event. Uh, the International Blues Challenge is huge. It's, wow, really overwhelmed us and blew us away. It was, we didn't know when we first got started what we were getting ourselves into. We thought, oh, this will be kind of fun. And we had friends that had been before, and we'd kind of seen some pictures. And we thought, okay, yeah, we're, we're going to go down and, and do this competition. But you don't fully understand the breadth of the people that you're going to meet and 
interact with and the quality of musicianship that you're going to experience until you get down there. And it's amazing. They call it Blue's Disney World for adults, and I guess it kind of is, but I think I'll have more fun next time because this time was Disney World running around as fast as I possibly could to every (laughs) single ride. And I think next time I might just know my favorites and go there and not wear myself out as much. So there was a tremendous learning curve to all of this. A huge learning curve. Huge learning curve. You know, um, there's this quote by Eric Clapton that I heard him say a long time ago. He said, I really found it difficult to play the blues. I had to work at it. Which, at the time I was in high school, I thought, that's absolutely ridiculous. Here is this guy. He's a titan on guitar. He's amazing. Why would he ever say he would have to work at blues? I totally get that now because blues, although it's deep into our culture and rock and all types of music have built on it, to really play blues and to get back at the root and to get back at the heart takes some doing. It takes following that thread and going that deep. So before we competed we thought we were a blues band and uh, we had some very lovely wonderful mentoring friends who gently said no no that's not really blues here let us help you out so they helped us to develop more of a blues sound and as we developed they were super encouraging and we developed the set and we competed with it and we thought oh now we're really playing blues but then we got to memphis and when we, the closer you get to Memphis, the definition of the blues gets deeper and deeper back to that root. And we didn't know what we didn't know till we were standing yeah. there, and we realized, oh, this is we're well, playing. You prepare for the you prepare yeah. for the competition, and and you have to have timed sets. And so every note that you're playing, everything that you do, every acknowledgement of the audience is part of the show. You have either a thirty minute, a twenty five, or twenty minute set, and you want to get you know. Every every ten seconds over the time, you get subtracted a point from your total score, and it's a scoring Dang. system that you're against. So it's very tight. It's a very professional uh, setup, and so you're rehearsing to the second, and you you have your stuff together, and it's a phenomenal sound, and your band is really tight. Our band was really tight. Yeah, we were. Good. It's an it's an overload when you see how good everybody else in the world is. They had 250 bands from Croatia, from France, Australia. We had people from everywhere who won their local um, state province. Challenge Croatian oh, yeah. American blues. Oh yeah, yeah. There was people from all over the world that are there to do this exact same thing, and the competition is—it's the best musicianship I've played with. It was—it oh, was, it was amazing. And um, yeah, sort and of the Olympics. Yeah, fly. it's like the Olympics yeah, of the blues. It is. <laughs> it is the Olympics of the blues. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So you survived your lose run. And, yes. Yeah. Um, sadly, I understand you did not win the event. No, we we did not win the event, and and we were told going there that that the point of this event is not to win. If anything, you don't necessarily that is not the goal. When you go, there are like being the uh, for blues fans, the adult Disney World. It is um every industry professional is there. Um, there are patrons there who just buy their ticket for the week pass, and there's 250 bands there. And they're all there for the same reason. They're there to network. They're there to make money. They're there to get gigs. They're there to meet people, to find industry insiders. And there, there's people from all get over the world. Advice, and we've met so many people that, it, and at first, it was like an overload. There was, wow, this is all here. So you're not simply there just to win. You're there to 
find out what the next opportunity is. And there was more than we could even capitalize on. It was, you know. So uh, did any of those things happen for you? Oh, yeah. We've, uh, <laughs> we've we had dinner. gigs, contacts, uh, yeah, world yeah. travel. Uh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, we, we need a little time to digest yeah, this there, and, it was, and to Like I said, it was a little bit overload. But some of the people that competed in our room, um, this Jack the Kaiser band that we had met, Amanda's been in contact with him recently, and he's he's amazing act from Canada. We, I had no idea who I was standing next to, and here's this act in our same room with us, and he's performing, and he's a really phenomenal musician, and I get to talking with him. Come to find out, he is an international performer. He performs all over Europe. He His shows sell out in Canada for 90 to $100 a piece tickets, but he's playing for free, and I'm having a drink with him next to this, you know, really world-class mm. musician because he wants to break into the American market and he's he's interested in and making connections here the same way we were. And I just, that's when my jaw hit the floor. It was afterward, after I'd talked to him and I got his phone number on my phone and I made this contact and we found out who he was later. And I thought, I didn't know. Well, <laughs> and, and that's the point. You get we, there. We had yeah. dinner with this guy. We were sitting, we met this guy. He had been one of the judges. He, we were having dinner with him. At, uh, he was sitting next to us at the at this Dyer's. bar at Dyer's Hamburgers. And we're sitting next to him. We'd seen him a few times throughout the his name's Bobby Black Hat. The guy won a blues music award and is up for a Grammy. Uh, I didn't know. Uh, I didn't yeah. know. Yeah. You know, we just we talked, and then he'd say who he was, so, and, yeah. and then so we've got a ton then of pen pals out, now that yeah. are just, we've traded information with, and and it's a huge, and that's really the reason you go. It's for the networking opportunity, and 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 uh, these people are fantastic because they're they're all open and willing to help mentor you, and and kind enough to give you the time of day in that particular context and to tell you what they know and to, if you ask them pointed questions, they're willing to give you that advice to help you move to the next level. Mm -hmm. So for us, just the fact that, you know, I've got these people that I can contact and say, oh, you know, what do you think the best way for this may be? And they would probably answer me. That's amazing. Sounds like you're going to go back next year. Uh, well, yeah, we're looking. There is yeah. that. I don't, <laughs> I don't know. We can't, I can't even think that far. It doesn't equal the answer in the van ride back. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, like I said, there was a little overload, sensory oh, overload yeah. at first. So I'm you digest sure. it. And it's like, oh, yeah, now let's regroup. And, and Well, just, just as a word of encouragement, you yeah. know, you mentioned Eric Clapton. He spent a year. In John Mayhall's basement, yeah. <laughs> yeah. you know, and all he did was play all day, every yeah. day. Yeah. And after that year, he emerged from his cocoon and became Eric Clapton. Yeah. So, you know, it's it all just, a process. Yep. It's yep. all a process. Yeah. Well, well, here we are in our process. So, Amanda Webb Band, how can we contact you? Do you have a Facebook page? Yes, we have a Facebook page, Amanda Webb Band on Facebook. Like us on Facebook. We're excited. We just crested a 1,000. Hey. And your new website with your EPK. Yep, I have a new website, uh, amandawebband.com. It's all on there. You can hear all of our music is on there. We're also on Spotify, Amanda Webband. iTunes as well. iTunes, anywhere. Amazon, anywhere. You can hear music. Thank you so much for coming in, playing your music, and sharing a bit of your story. We really appreciate it. Thank you so much for for having us. Thank you.
This is Chris Curtin with a poem called The New Bridge. At last they have made the road safe for travel. There were a dozen or more on either side of the road, tall, stately, robust young sycamores crowded together in two straight lines hugging the road. In summer it was like driving through a tunnel, the huge mottled bark trees with sun-drenched yellow-green leaves dappled and dancing in the breeze, glowing so they seemed to produce a sunlight of their own that they would release back into the atmosphere at dusk in a golden glow. Between the rows of trees was an old green iron bridge, partly rusted now. One was forced because of the narrow old bridge and the poor visibility caused by the trees to slow down, losing precious seconds in the race to be someplace else. The people in charge of such things came in with the chainsaws and bulldozers, and the offending trees were removed. Now the new wider bridge enables the driver to speed through that 100-yard straight stretch safely and securely, content with the knowledge that his field of vision will not be marred by those damned sycamore trees. Now we pause for station identification. You are listening to the Brown County Hour on Volunteer Powered Community Radio, WFHB, at 100.7 in Brown County, 91.3 and 98.1 in Bloomington, 106.3 in Ellettsville, and online at WFHB.org. The second segment begins with our interview with the Brown County League of Women Voters President, Sherry Frank. Susan Clearwater shares some information about herbs and winter colds. Jeff Tryon weighs in on the local music scene and will close with the Amanda Webb tune recorded live in our studio, Jeffro's Blues. This evening, it is my pleasure to introduce Sherry Frank, who is the president of the Brown County League of Women Voters. And with her are a couple of companions who I will allow to introduce themselves. And they're going to share some information about the league and what they've been up to. I'm Pam Rader. I'm a past president. I'm currently a vice president. I've also been secretary. I'm Kathy Roundtree. I'm a current board member of the League of Women Voters. Um, And we really appreciate the opportunity to talk about the league Uh, One of the things I wanted to mention is that the title League of Women Voters can be misunderstood because even though it has a lot of historical perspective, we want to make sure people know that the League also includes men, women, LGBTQ. Gender doesn't matter. What matters is that people are interested in safeguarding democracy because that's the main thing that we work on and that the League has worked on from the beginning. It was founded in 1920 by uh, Carrie Chapman Catt, just six months before the 19th Amendment to the U.S. Constitution was finally ratified after a mere 72-year battle (laughs) to finally give women the right to vote. One of the key values of the League is that we are nonpartisan. And what it means is that the League doesn't support or oppose any political party or any candidate. But we are political because we focus on issues. We work really hard to protect transparency in government and to protect democracy. And some of the things we do are 
voter education, voter rights, getting out the vote. We are Brown County, and we focus a lot on local issues, but we're part of a statewide and nationwide organization, and um, we work together to figure out what the issues are. No single person or group can decide what our positions will be, what we're going to support. There's a lot of study and effort that goes into it. And one of the things that we see is that voter rights are being threatened and there's voter suppression. The Indiana League worked to stop our Indiana government from purging thousands of voters last year. And it's not a settled issue. The Brennan Center filed a suit to stop the purge on the behalf of the Indiana League and also NAACP. And it challenges an Indiana law that, that was put into place that's actually in violation of the National Voter Registration Act. So far, the court has prevented the state from purging the voters, but the fight's not over. Another issue that we're really working on is ending gerrymandering. We're trying to reform the way voting districts are developed. Gerrymandering is the term that was given for district lines that are drawn specifically to give advantage to certain candidates or certain parties. And it's very contrary to the basic principle of the league and of democracy, which is one person, one vote. Because when districts are drawn so that one party will win, then the votes become meaningless. So the league position is that partisan gerrymandering is wrong. Now that's not necessarily to accuse anybody that that is what they have done, but what's missing is any criteria for drawing the districts. Right now there's nothing that says they have to be fair, um, that they have to keep communities of interest together. And a prime example is Monroe County, where Bloomington was chopped up into five districts to dissipate their influence. Yeah. I've, I've heard it said break and bunch. So you bunch one group all together so that they can only elect one representative, and you break other groups up so that they don't have the power of numbers. That's a perfect description. And we're actually going to have an article in our wonderful Democrat newspaper next week that shows pictures of that. And if people are interested in looking it up, they can go to Washington Post website and ACLU, and you can see visually how districts have changed. And it's, it's mind-blowing. They've completely changed shapes and the area that they cover. Nowadays, with all the computer technology, the districts can be drawn with extreme precision to get whatever outcome is desired unless we get legislation to stop it, to make sure that it's fair. Studies have shown that districts drawn by nonpartisan commissions are proven to create competitive races. And that's just a big part of the extreme divisiveness that we have now. I have to make sure that we advertise our March 7th presentation coming up, 6 o'clock at the library. 
It's open to the public, and we'll have Julia Vaughn from Common Cause, who has years and years of experience uh, developing policy and protecting voter rights. In Indiana, we don't have any way for the population to put this on the ballot and vote for it, but other states do and have. Uh, Ohio, Michigan, and several other states have the voters that's right. Demanded. The, the, the referendum was uh, yeah. made. Uh, yeah. They they removed our ability to have a referendum. Yeah. It, 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 you know, so the government doesn't really want to hear from us. That's disconcerting. It is classic example in my mind of gerrymandering is the fact that we live in Brown County and our representatives live in Bedford. And now is the time because the districts are redrawn after the census every 10 years. So 2020 is coming up. So we're hoping there are a couple of bills uh, that are being considered that offer some good criteria to have more accountability for the way the districts are drawn. Uncertain if they will pass. (laughs) Well, I'm sure there's plenty of opposition. So, uh, the League, do you have a website that people can follow your activities and learn more about what you're doing? We have a website. It is LWV, for League of Women Voters, lwvbrowncounty.org. And on the website, you can see information about the gerrymandering presentation, March 7th, 6 o'clock. There's also a handy little membership form you could download because we'd love to have people join us. Uh, We send out newsletters and we have alerts for different legislation in case people are interested, uh, including not just voting, but clean water, clean air, and locally working with uh, protecting our forests. Well, obviously your organization has functioned as a tremendously important part of our society. And I thank you for your work, and I thank you so much for sharing your story and coming in this evening. Thank you. Thank you. For Your Health, highlighting herbs and the holistic approach. I'm Susan Clearwater with over 30 years of experience as a holistic registered nurse and herbalist. Today, I'm offering suggestions to help us get through the winter cold and flu season. It's always good to begin by talking about ways to prevent getting colds and the flu. I'm a firm believer in taking a high-potency vitamin and mineral supplement because it definitely strengthens the immune system as well as many other benefits. Also, eat a healthy diet of whole grains, adequate protein, and plenty of fresh fruits and vegetables. Research studies show that eating sugar weakens the immune system for several hours, So eat sugar in moderation and avoid it completely when you're sick. Sugar, dairy products, and gluten flours and breads tend to increase mucus production, so avoid these while you're sick. Medicinal herbs can be extremely helpful for preventing and treating the common cold and flu. My two favorite herbs are echinacea, which is very popular now, and boneset, which grows wild around here, but it's virtually unknown for its medicinal uses. There's several species of echinacea, but echinacea angustifolia and echinacea purpurea have the strongest medicinal properties. The roots contain the highest concentrations of medicinal chemicals, but the leaves and flowers are also used. Echinacea purpurea is extremely easy to cultivate from seeds here in Indiana, 
And so this is the species I grow in my gardens and make into a tincture, which is a water and alcohol extract of the roots, leaves, and flowers. There's a wealth of scientific research and clinical evidence showing that well-made echinacea preparations activate the immune system to produce the many types of white blood cells that seek out and destroy viruses, bacteria, and yeast infections. If I've been exposed to the cold or flu, or if I'm flying on an airplane, I take a large dose of echinacea tincture, which is about one to one and a half tablespoons, in a cup of water, and almost always avoid getting sick. If I do get sick, I take one to one and a half tablespoons every three to four hours over a few days and feel better much faster as symptoms improve. For this reason, I love tinctures that are made from freshly harvested plants because they tend to be very potent and they keep their potency for years. The other immune-boosting herb I mentioned is boneset, known as Eupatorium perfoliatum. Several scientific studies show boneset's ability to stimulate and improve immunity, and one German study found that it's about 10 times more potent than echinacea. For this reason, I tincture the leaves and flower heads to combine it with echinacea tincture for a really powerful remedy for colds, flu, and all types of infections. Back during the colonial days in early American history, European settlers learned how to use bone set from the Native American Indians, and it became a popular herbal medicine with the general population and the early American medical doctors. You won't find bone set in most health food stores, but with some ingenuity and a good herbal identification book, you can probably find it growing in a field or by a pond in moist soil. The tiny white flowers are grouped into a flower head arrangement, and if you learn how to make a tincture, which is very easy, you can experience the fun of making your own herbal medicine with bone set. So to prevent and treat a cold or flu, get a tincture of echinacea to keep in your medicine cabinet to take with the first symptoms of illness. You can also grow these herbs around your home. The pink echinacea flowers are especially beautiful. They attract butterflies, and later goldfinches love to eat the seeds. This is Susan Clearwater. If you want to learn more about using echinacea and bone set or how to make tinctures, you can refer to my book, The Art of Herbal Healing, A Guide to Health and Wholeness, available at greenturtlebotanicals.com. You'll find pictures of these herbs and more detailed information on using them. Until next time, here's to your health. This is My Brown County with Jeff Tryon. Let's hear it for live, original music. Why can't Brown County be the same kind of music destination as Austin or Memphis or Athens? How can we make Brown County into a new music destination where people come to hear original music and where new acts and players get the chance to grow and rise? When we think about what our local culture has to offer visitors to this place, surely our music is as important as the scenery, the paintings, the history, or the making and drinking of alcoholic beverages. Brown County has a rich musical history that goes all the way back to the earliest pioneers entertaining themselves with bluegrass and Americana tunes around the old log cabin. My grandfather played at barn dances in Helmsburg in the 30s and 40s. They were big social event of the day. Long before Bill Monroe discovered Bean Blossom, there was a regular jamboree of live entertainers in the fall of each year. Hohenberger has left us a photo of a big circus tin and the sign outside announcing Bean Blossom Jamboree. 
When Bill Monroe came to Bean Blossom, there was already a local music scene. Acts like Doc Bicell's bluegrass band had ventured out as far as Indianapolis and were heard over the radio. We've got the music history, and we've got a lot of local musicians, not only players, but folks who are accomplished on the technical side of recording and reproducing music. We have a rich resource of musical talent in and around our county, not just hungry young up-and-comers, but also seasoned veterans who know their way around a song, a stage, and an audience. When the now-defunct Pine Room decided to focus on providing a space for live music, it proved to be a popular and successful arrangement. They didn't do too well as a bar or a restaurant, but they fostered a thriving music scene that's the kind of thing that makes a place a musical destination. Maybe that's telling us something about how we attend to music in public places, how we listen to music together publicly. Because of modern-day electronics, music has become such an intensely personal experience in our most solitary and introspective moments. When our hearts and minds are open, we are listening to music. Most of the time, we are listening to music we are alone or, or with one or two other people. When we go out to hear music, we typically go to a bar where the band is just kind of an added attraction. The main event is socializing, getting lubricated, and, oh yeah, there's a band over there in the corner. Musicians call this a wallpaper gig. They're expected to just kind of blend in with the scene, not make too much of a fuss. Play well-worn cover tunes, the golden hits of yesterday and today. This is not the way to encourage and nurture singer-songwriters who are giving us poetry and music from their soul, putting their whole hearts out there on the high wire. We as a community need to create spaces and offer the resources to see and hear what the musicians among us are doing. And we need to actually get out and see them, patronize them, throw them a couple of bucks here and there. You will be amazed. I mean, sure, it takes all kinds to make a circus and everybody isn't going to love everything that comes down the pike, but I am always surprised and uplifted when I go out and actually get to hear local singer-songwriters doing their own thing from their heart. They're right here, living and working amongst us, struggling to survive and still make time for their art and their craft. We as a community need to recognize that and value that. When I was a teenager, the cops in Nashville would run you off the corner if you tried to stand on the street playing your guitar, singing a plaintive tune of love and humanity. Now, buskers are welcomed around town, and there's even a live music series down at the Village Green. Times do change, and we can change the way that Brown County relates to music and musicians and the picture we paint for the visitors who are our primary industry. We need to get it in our own minds and project to others from elsewhere that Brown County is a hotbed of original live music, that one of the things you need to check off your list when you come to Brown County is to dip into our rich reservoir of music and performance. And we may have to change some people's minds about the difference between wallpaper music, some bar band doing covers of top hits, and the real honest grit of a real person singing you their song, inviting you along on their journey, their vision. What Brown County needs is a reputation for getting new artists noticed, so it will be the kind of place where talented young people come to get started in the music business. We need some kind of event, a musical festival that celebrates local players and singers and songwriters of every stripe, showcases what they do, possibly even give them some kind of, oh, I don't know, monetary incentive. 
how can we make Brown County into a new music destination where people come to hear the music and where new acts and players get the chance to grow and rise? It starts by thinking of it that way and telling everyone that's what it is. Brown County is a place for singer-songwriters singing original music. Brown County has long been recognized as an artist colony, and our local tunesmiths, troubadours, and musical ensembles are artists just as surely as any paint-stained wretch who ever labored over a canvas on plain air out in the open splendor of a Brown County day. Let's start thinking of Brown County as a place for live, original music and communicating that idea to others. She's playing house with the new shoes on the floor She took every little piece of my heart And she wants more That's alright, that's a move But when I'm done, baby, crying over you There's one thing I'm never gonna lose I've still got the blues Still got the uh, blues pause for station identification. You are listening to the Brown County Hour on Volunteer Power Community Radio, WFHB, at 100.7 in Brown County, 91.3 and 98.1 in Bloomington, 106.3 in Ellettsville, and online at wfhb.org. In our final segment, we'll hear our interview with local artist Gabrielle Lehman. Dave Seastrom cannot stop talking about the weather, and we'll close the show with the Amanda Webb Band's live recording of her tune, Indiana Town. 
This is Vera Grubbs for the Brown County Hour. We're in our studio this evening. We're interviewing the artist Gabriel Lehman. Hello, how are you, Gabriel? I'm well. How are you, Vera? Good. I'm glad you could come and see us today. And thanks for coming in. Yeah, thanks for having me. I went to your website, and I'm intrigued by your style of art. What do you call that style, or how would you describe it? Uh, I'm calling it illustrative surrealism. Um, I'm an instinctive painter. I don't plan out my paintings too much. I just kind of jump in and just create an atmosphere that's pleasant. And I might have, like right now, I've got three backgrounds sitting there. And uh, when the idea pops, I can just see the whole thing and then I just paint it in. But I like, I've always enjoyed illustration and surrealism. So that's kind of my blend and I'm kind of making it up as I go. I'm having a good time. And uh, What is your process? I use acrylic paint on canvas. I like to have my paints really thin, almost like a gouache. Um, uh, friends of mine that are artists as well, they kind of make fun of me and tell me that I'm, I'm working with house paint because I keep it so thin. But my style is... Uh, it's very stacked up. So I start with like, if I'm doing a blue sky, I will do a huge fade from light to dark from top to bottom. And then I love painting clouds and the play of light on clouds. And so that's why that's predominantly what you will see is like higher atmosphere um, with, uh, you know, larger clouds and things like that. So you're working in combination with your wife, Jamie Lehman. And she is the writer, and you are the artist, and yes. together you produce children's books. Yes, she's a lot of fun. That's actually how we met. She was looking for someone to illustrate, and I've been asked a lot to illustrate a lot of books just because of my style. It kind of lends itself to an illustrative uh, format. And I have issues with reading, so like the conceptual dyslexia, wrapping my mind around someone else's ideas is really a great challenge for me. So when she approached me, I was like, well, let's see, you know, send me some of your work. And I, she sent me a stack of her poems and I'd already illustrated quite a few of them. It was really fascinating for me. I was like, oh my gosh, I've already done like half of these. And she's a very prolific writer. And so she's written tons and we're, we're actually working on something pretty special right now. So we've got our first children's book and she does a lot of short sing-song poetry as well as uh, the little bit longer stories. So I'm making a leather-bound book with uh, handmade paper and uh, I am painting each page individually to make one single, hopefully, masterpiece. So we'll see. I've never made a book before. But now this is we'll interesting. See. So you're not going to like mass produce these books? Oh, we will. We'll have them scanned. I'm formatting the piece so the pages are actually going to be roughly 16 by 20. So when we have them scanned, we can shrink them down to an 8 by 10 book so everybody can enjoy. But there will be one master copy that will be really fun to look at. Yeah. A true original. Indeed, yes. <laughs> Well, no, Gabriel, uh, just briefly, when you came into the studio, you mentioned that you had a pretty diverse background that includes music and studio work and construction. You want to talk about what the phases were to bring <laughs> you to where you are today? Well, I started in construction right after uh, high school. Uh, anything from masonry to roofing and things like that and vinyl siding. And I, 
landed on flooring and I did flooring for um, 14 years and um, anybody that does that for any lengthy of, of time they can tell you that your body just falls apart especially if you're working hard and trying to you know get it yep. done get out of the occupation as quickly as possible lower and, back knees if you don't wear yep. a respirator you'll be on oxygen for the rest of your life yep yep thank god my knees are good and but my hands started uh getting bad and and having challenges in school um school really wasn't an option for me i always enjoyed music and so i leaned into uh playing live music and uh worked in some studios down in nashville uh, big Nashville, <laughs> yeah. and ended up on the East Coast entertaining quite a bit and still laying flooring and, uh, you know, just took a long look at my life and was I happy and was I pleased with what, and, and I just found myself very uh, dissatisfied. And while music is fun, it certainly wasn't what I really felt I was called to do. I started thinking back in my mind, you know, when was I really happiest? And that was when I was a little kid and I used to draw on everything and anything. I was supposed to be taking a test and I'm drawing all over it. So, uh, but as you know, drawing is a very perishable skill. And so I picked up drawing again and I was terrible at it and I was very <laughs> disappointed. So uh, I had some paints there. So I decided to go ahead and try painting, and I fell in love instantly. And uh, within a year after my first painting, I uh, was living in my car, painting on anything I could get a hold of, and started doing art shows. I didn't even know what an art show was uh, when I started painting. Somebody, uh, a friend of mine, said, you know, you should do an art show. I was like, what is that? Well, people actually will buy this stuff? Well, oh, cool. So... And that's how it began. How, how long ago was that? That was 2009. I started painting. Okay, so, so 10, 2009, you're living in your car. And now, yep. in 2019, 10 years later, you're living in a geodesic dome in Brown County with yeah, your wife. Seven acres, a, beautiful wife. And yeah, my son's uh, with us. We got three dogs and having a great time just enjoying life. Why Brown County and how Brown County? You know, it's interesting. I lived in North Carolina for a long time, and I did a lot of my uh, early works ended up in, uh, like, the Appalachians. Um, Appalachian State University was the first museum show that I did, and I just fell in love with the rolling hills and the mountains. And then I went from there to continue to show in Virginia, and I just fell in love. And when I moved back to Indiana, I was like, oh, my gosh, I forgot how flat it is, you know? And... Uh, we came down here um, to explore Brown County to do zip lining, my, my wife and I. And I was like, I did not know that this was here. This is just amazing. And my wife and I, we were living in the southern part of Indy in Greenwood. And um, we were looking to buy a house. And everything was selling so fast up there. And she just asked me, what do, where do you want to be? And I said, Brown County. And that's where I want to end up. That's I want a place, some acreage, and just live life and just enjoy the wildlife. And, yeah, and we found a house in Nineveh. And, yeah, it's a dream come true. We're very, very happy to be down here, just uh, thrilled with uh, the wildlife and everything. It's, it's amazing. So how but, long have you been in Brown County? Uh, three years now. Well, welcome aboard. Well, thank you. So, Gabriel, how can we see your art, uh, 
perhaps even purchase some. Do you have a website, a Facebook page? We do. Um, Facebook page is just Gabriel Lehman. Um, and my website is GabrielLehman.com. And I also have art locally here at the B3 Gallery. Okay. Um, we've got originals and prints available there. Um, we're very proud of our product, originals and the prints. We're, we figured if somebody's going to buy a print, I want it to be an archival piece, something that they will be able to pass down for generations. So that's the quality of paper and inks that we're using and things like that. Well, Gabriel, thank you so much for coming in and sharing your story, and we wish you all the very best. <laughs> Look forward to seeing your stuff at B3. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Wild weather is expected in the winter, and here in hill country, we usually get our fair share. But this year, it seems like the weather has ratcheted up a bit. We've gone from one polar vortex to the next, and this month we had a five-inch rain event known as the Great Flood of 2019. When it comes to flooding, there are several advantages to living on a ridge top. We are at 930 feet, and the water is always moving away from our location. When we had the massive flood on February 7th, I stood outside and heard the roar of hundreds of raging streams as the water drained downhill. The rain quickly pools and backs up in the valleys and ravines, and when it stops falling, the rain drains from the highest points first, and a few hours later it's all heading for the Mississippi. Waves of water fell from the sky, and early on, it was obvious that we were going to experience massive flooding. There was even widespread flooding in areas where the hills and valleys didn't make the situation worse. But in the hinterlands, we were scrambling for our lifeboats and snorkels. It's a good thing the weather's not messed up, or we might be in trouble. Flooding like this happens periodically, but you might say yesterday's event was a real rip-snorter, a full-out, over-the-top flood that was damn near apocalyptic. It's humbling when the humans get our comeuppance and our collective illusion of being in control is washed away like our bridges and roads. Perhaps it's good for us, but that would suppose that we're paying attention. My wife Becky called about midday with the news that the flooding was getting worse. She was receiving reports from mail carriers, drivers, and customers, all of whom were saying it was as bad or worse than they've ever seen. The rain continued to fall, and she called again and expressed her concerns about getting home. Rightfully so, because where we live, there are only a few ways in and out, and all of them are prone to flooding. The low spot on Anderson Road floods first. Everyone who lives around here knows that even a far lesser rain will close that section of road. North Shore floods next, but it takes a prolonged rain, and with the rain pounding down, there was no question that Bean Blossom Creek would be all over that road. To get to Possum Trot from the outside world, the path of last resort is State Road 45 to Brandsetter, Bear Creek to Slippery Elm Chute, then to North Shore, and finally arriving at Possum Trot. Becky was scheduled to get off work at 3, so a little after 2, I drove the four-wheel drive truck down Possum Trot to check the conditions. Possum Trot was a washed-out river covered in debris, and the creek next to it was a raging torrent. 
This was not a good sign, but I pressed on anyway. Our section of North Shore wasn't flooded, but I could tell from the height of the lake that the low spots would be completely underwater, so I didn't even try it. So I turned on Slippery Elm Chute, and even though it was horribly washed out, I picked my way from North Shore to Bear Creek. When I arrived at Bear Creek, the bridge was almost underwater, and on either side of it was a raging river. I called Becky from the truck and told her there was no way she was getting home that night. I carefully turned around in the driveway to avoid the deep water at the old Stevenson place, and I retraced my path back home. In the time it took to get to Bear Creek and back to the house, the conditions had worsened. So I got on the phone and alerted my friends and neighbors about the situation and told them to stay where they were. On my way back home, I stopped a neighbor in a low-slung little car, and I told him, You ain't going to make it in that car. He nervously said, I have to be at work in an hour. I wished him well and watched as he drove off to an uncertain future. I found out later that when he got to the water's edge, he thought the better of it and turned back around. Becky and a whole bunch of our neighbors and friends spent the night in town. As if to emphasize how extreme our weather has become, ushered in by a howling wind, the temperature dropped from 65 to 13 that night. It will be March when this show airs, and with any luck, spring is just around the corner. That is, unless the lion ends up eating the lamb. This is Dave Seastrom. See you next time. This is Indiana Town. Slippery noodle, nor the Mason Dixon line.
Thanks for tuning in to episode 84 of the Brown County Hour, recorded in our studio at the History Center here in downtown Nashville, and brought to you the first Sunday of every month at 9 a.m. and the following Wednesday at 6 p.m. And be sure to look for us on iTunes and Stitcher. The Brown County Hour is brought to you by a diverse group of folks who believe, now more than ever, the world is for everyone. This show was produced by Chuck Wills, Pam Rader, Rick Fettig, Vera Grubbs, Jim Lemon, and Dave Seastrom. We would also like to thank Slats Klug for our theme music. You have been listening to the Brown County Hour. Coming to you from deep in the woods of Brown County, Indiana. Celebrating the arts, culture, and nature that make this such a unique community. Visit us online at browncountyhour.com. The Brown County Hour is a production of WFHB. Volunteer-powered, listener-supported community radio for South Central Indiana. Take me back, back to my home, Brown County. Oh